Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to episode one of Canine Hijinks. We're so glad you have decided to join us. My name is Alyssa Looney. I'm a resident of Oregon and owner of Four Dogs, and I'm casually known by my friends, coworkers, husband, and daughter as a crazy dog lady. And I'm Whitney Taylor. I have three fur kids, two two-legged kids, and a wonderful and patient husband, and we all live on five acres in uh, southwest Washington. Today, we want to introduce you to our podcast. We plan to share our stories with you and give you a preview of the learning opportunities we hope to share with you in future episodes. So to begin, why don't we tell you a little more about how the two of us went from regular pet owner to dog sport enthusiasts. Whitney, you want to get us started? Sure. I started in the sport of agility 10 years ago. I had been interested in competing for several years after seeing a competition on TV, I did a little research, and I think it was the e- on ESPN3 as part of the Great Outdoor Games. There were hunt tests and duck diving and frisbee, but I thought agility looked like a total blast. And I should add, I have always loved dogs. We always had a dog when I was growing up, but this was more than that. I was fascinated by all of the things that dogs could do. I would actually check out breed books from the library so that I could learn about what dogs were originally bred to do. And I loved that Animal Planet show, Breed All About It. I don't know if anybody else ever watched that. So I was pretty antsy to have my own dog. I got my first dog when I was 19 and in college. She was an Australian cattle dog that I bought off of a working cattle farm. And when I look back at that now, I have no idea what I was thinking. Maddie was a pretty great little dog, and I loved her to pieces. I had done a fair amount of research before I got her, and I had a pretty good idea of what to expect. And at the time, I considered myself a well-informed dog owner. Dexter, who was destined to be my first agility dog, was another story. He is a Springer mix that my fiancé and I found on Petfinder. Okay, I found him on Petfinder. I really wanted a cat. But Buddy, the fiancé, now husband, is allergic to cats, so I convinced him that we should get another dog, a dog that was supposed to be his dog. I already had a dog. Maddie was about seven or eight at the time. So not being my dog, I didn't really do all of the things with Dexter that I had done with Maddie. Plus, he was supposed to be part lab, and unlike cattle dogs who are known for their tendency to be nippy, prone to resource guarding, and other behaviors that can lead to euthanasia in shelters, and this irrational fear that Maddie was going to get lost, end up in a shelter, and get euthanized before I could find her. But that's neither here nor there. I thought labs were just happy, sort of regardless. So we didn't socialize, or what I thought of socialization at the time. What I came to realize about the time Dexter was a year old or so was that he was incredibly shy, 
scared of anything unfamiliar, which was everything, and completely lacking in confidence. The light bulb moment came for me when he saw a baby sitting in a yard while we were on a walk, and he just went ballistic. Total alarm barking, trying to ward off this clearly terrifying creature. I felt like a very bad dog owner in that moment. I really felt like I had failed Dexter. And honestly, I had no idea if I was going to be able to fix it. So do you want to know something else about Dexter? He was incredibly athletic. He would perform amazing acrobatic maneuvers catching the ball. He loved swimming and hiking. We also heard from our next-door neighbor, Craig, that Dexter was coming to visit him during the day. He would bring Craig his ball, hoping to coax him into a game of fetch. And there was only one place that Dexter could be getting out, so we baited him to see what would happen. Much to our surprise, he was hopping over a 30-inch fence in a single bound, not scaling it, jumping. Gracefully, I might add. And I just thought, I have really got to do something with this dog. I still didn't really know anything about agility, but Google existed in 2010, whereas it had not when I got Maddie in 2001, or even when I saw those competitions on TV around 2004. So to Google, I went. I found the Columbia Agility team. In the description, it mentioned that agility classes were not social hour and that it was a handler's responsibility for keeping their dogs focused on them. I thought, perfect. Dexter doesn't want to socialize with other dogs anyway. So I thought taking him to agility class would help him build confidence and give him an outlet for all of that athletic energy. So I signed us up. At two, Dexter was the oldest dog in the class, which really surprised me at the time. Dexter wasn't immediately taken with agility like I was, but I was patient with him and so was the instructor, and we made enough progress in that first class to move up to the next level. I've been enrolled in agility ever since. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what else to say about it because my love of the sport was just so immediate. Uh, The journey's been difficult at times, but overall, incredible. I I owe so much to the sport, and I look forward to talking about it more in future episodes. So my journey from regular pet owner to dog sport enthusiast started about 11 years ago, and uh, that was when my mother convinced me to go to a small town and bring home a two-year-old lab Visla mix named Daisy. Uh, She had been raised primarily outdoors and with very little socialization and therefore was pretty nervous about everything. At the same time, she had a lot of energy and that required a lot of exercise. About a year after I got her, through a series of coincidences, I ended up bringing home a six-month-old Visla puppy named Tug. He was sweet as can be and the definition of a Velcro dog. Uh, He was handsome, loving, highly energetic, and also full of nervous energy. In my early 20s then, I was training for running events and would take both dogs jogging with me regularly. Tug even accompanied me on training runs to prep for a half marathon. But that kind of exercise did little to curb their energy in the house, and I started to realize that I would have to find something to do to use up all of that energy. 
I don't remember it clearly, but at some point I had also seen agility on TV and wondered if that would be something I could do with my dogs. After all, they were incredibly athletic. After Googling agility, I also found the Columbia Agility Team and that they held introductory agility classes not far from my house. So I signed up. I began with Daisy and she seemed to have a great time. Unfortunately, she was unable to continue in the sport after I discovered that she had a very poor physical structure, which led to surgery on her elbows shortly after I began that first agility class. Her surgeon told me that agility was no longer something that could be part of her life, and I was heartbroken. Meanwhile, though, Tug was soon old enough to begin agility classes, so I tried again. Little did I realize just how nervous new people and environments made him. The combination of my inexperience with dog training and his nerves meant we had to retake that first class several times before the instructor said we could graduate to the next level. While Tug wasn't what I would call a shining star at agility, I did find that he was mentally tired from it and much calmer in my house after class. So I stuck with it. With time, he even seemed to enjoy it. It was in that next class that I met two ladies that were destined to become some of my best friends, and I truly discovered my love for the sport. It was nearly 10 years ago now that Tug and I started in class with, among others, Whitney and her dog, Dexter. Soon, we started entering agility competitions, we hung out as friends, we traveled together, and were learning the sport together. And it's safe to say, several dogs down the line, that I'm addicted to the sport and find greater enjoyment in it than nearly anything else. I've gained friendships, skills, I've stayed active, and I've learned a great deal about dogs, their health, and their behavior along the way. My journey with dog training and agility has brought me to a place in my life where I have an insatiable desire to continue learning about dog behavior and training. And as I've learned more and become known in my day job for my penchant for dogs, I'm now asked quite regularly about advice for training pet dogs and where to go for help when needed. And so that's really what has inspired this podcast. There's so much information out there related to dog training that it can actually be really overwhelming to know where to start. So it's my hope that this is a space to cut through that barrage of information and provide you with resources to explore more with your dogs. I really love hearing your story. Alyssa, I, it's funny. I, we've been friends for a long time. I don't think it's actually something that I really knew exactly how you got into agility. <laughs> Let's talk about how agility helped our dogs with their confidence. Mm-hmm. So how how did agility help Tug? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, it helped him mostly with being a little more sane when we were at home. <laughs> um, he had so much energy. Uh, it was hard to have him be calm when we were in the house. And the expenditure of mental energy by going to these training classes and working with him outside of class was super helpful at home. It also exposed him to so many new things, uh, new people, new equipment, new surfaces. Um, we traveled a lot because of agility. So we went to all kinds of places. He met other dogs. Uh, the the ways it helped him were just, I don't know, I probably can't even keep track of them all. But mostly it was that it gave him an outlet for some energy that I couldn't otherwise expend with him. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think probably a lot of people can relate to that, right? If you have a dog that is just kind of bouncing off the walls and you're walking them all the time and running them all the time, 
and they're still just going nuts. And yeah. maybe the missing link is that there there needs to be some mental exhaustion and mm-hmm. not just physical exhaustion. Yeah, for sure. And and I think the other thing I should mention is it helped our relationship a lot. Um, I got to know him a lot better because we were going and learning things together in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise done if the only thing I'd done for exercise was uh, walks around my neighborhood, for instance. Right. Well, and it's just really interesting to hear that that was how it helped Tug because it was so different for Dexter, right? What he learned was the world is not out to get him. Not Mm -hmm. every single thing he sees is going to approach him. He doesn't have to worry about every every little thing out in his environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that we also got to know each other better, right? And he learned to trust me and that I wouldn't put him in situations where he had to defend himself, right? So Dexter is a classic example of a dog who can turn really reactive. So if he's scared and he's put in situations to be fearful all the time that and, and feeling like there's the only thing he can do is defend himself, that's how you can end up with a reactive dog, right? And what he learned was the opposite. He learned that I would advocate for him, and he learned that it, he didn't have to be petted by every person he saw, which was mm-hmm. hard for him because he is a, you'll have to look on our Facebook page, an adorable dog with a giant fluffy tail, big doe eyes, droopy ears. Like people just instantaneously reached their hands out to him, right? And he was like, no, mom will step in front of those hands and and keep me safe. And so I don't have to bark and lunge and and be scary in order to um, protect myself from that person that I don't want to interact with. And I used to joke, it was funny, the only time he ever approaches people is at an agility trial. He has learned <laughs> that agility people like have cookies. And so yes. it's it's super weird for a dog who is, you know, completely aloof and just, he can go anywhere with me. I um, had the opportunity to take him to work. I worked in a large corporate office building with 500 people in the building and he would come in with me once a week. He didn't like go up to people aside from the one coworker I had who did always feed him. He would go up to her. Um, but at agility trials, he would go up to strangers, strangers. It was so mm-hmm. weird for him. But he just he knew he knew he could be safe in that environment because that was what he learned over time. I think that's such a great point. You know, Tug wasn't the most outgoing dog, and the people who tend to attend agility trials or classes, have a little more experience with dogs. And when they would see that he was nervous around them, they'd stop approaching. A lot of times they'd bend down. They'd they'd let him come up to them instead of the other way around. And because Tug was a very handsome Vizsla, he also got a lot of attention just on the street walking around. He was unique. Right. He was really pretty. But he didn't want strangers touching him. So similarly, when we were in those environments, he got to meet a lot more people. And I and I think I learned how to advocate for him a little more mm-hmm. and that it's okay to say, you know what, my dog's kind of scared. I would just appreciate it if you didn't pet him right now. Or I could say something like, if he comes up to you, you can, of course, pet him, but let him come to you. And right. and then he got better about that over time. Yeah. I think there are a lot of ways that we can advocate for our dogs. And I think it's important that people know that you, you don't have to let people pet your dog. 
Absolutely. I think that there's some expectations out there that you let anybody who wants to pet your dog and you absolutely don't have to do what is best for them. You have words. They don't be their advocate. And I've heard people say like, oh, my dog has rabies and that that's how <laughs> they convince people, oh, you no. know, not, you know, that they're sick. They have a contagious disease. And that way people won't want to pet their dog because it can be difficult to dissuade people. And personally, that hasn't been my experience. I would say he's really shy. He would prefer not to be petted. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I have food in with me, I can say, you know, he's easily bought. You can feed him. I always found it important to put it back on the dog, right, that it he's shy. There's nothing wrong with you, random person on the street. My dog is shy, right? Yes. So. And I, I think that's a lot easier than saying, like, I don't want you to pet my dog. Yes. More that my dog doesn't want to be pet right now. Certainly. Or um, one of the things I've noticed with my most recent puppy is if I'm actively training her and actively feeding her treats when people walk by, um, it's a signal to them mm-hmm. that we're training and they tend to stay away. Although some of that has to do with the current pandemic we find ourselves in as well. Um, It's actually been pretty good for her as she's meeting new people to have them not automatically come up to her because, of course, we have social distancing in place. So uh, your last comments about Dexter and advocating for him kind of leads into the next question. And I'm wondering if you feel like that's the biggest lesson you learned with him as a pet owner or are there other things that you think were even bigger lessons than, than advocating that? for him was has probably right up there for me. What are some of the other things? Well, so that socialization is important, right? So that was kind of the other thing that I as I mentioned, I really mm-hmm. just took that for granted and I thought like all dogs are friendly and you you don't really have to do anything about that and that socialization was about making sure a dog wasn't aggressive. So my definition of socialization has changed over the years, my definition and understanding of it. But at this point, I would say that socialization is about a dog having a broad range of experiences, ideally good, that they have to draw from in order to generalize. So uh, dogs don't generalize well. In fact, typically animals don't generalize well. They need some help. And their lack of ability to generalize is evolutionary, right? They need to be able to distinguish a stick from a snake. So, And they sort of err on the side of caution, right? Mm -hmm. So our job is to help introduce them to lots and lots of things, lots and lots of people, and let them see all of that. One thing that stood out to me, Dexter did not see many people of color. I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood in Portland when I was raising him, and he was scared the first time he saw a black man on the street, right? He he didn't generalize that experience. And so he didn't need to have lots of people come mm-hmm. up and pet mm-hmm. him. He just needed to see that person and go, oh, That's also a person. When we talk about socialization, that's the generalization that we're looking for. Walking on different surfaces and seeing people moving, seeing bicycles, seeing cars. So that was the other thing for me that was a a big deal was learning like you can't, you just can't skip that. Otherwise, well, you're just going to have to do a lot of work in order to combat that. Yes, 
Absolutely. I agree with that. And I don't think either of my first couple dogs, I did a very good job of socialization with. Um, and with subsequent dogs, it's been much better. I do think for me, one of the biggest lessons that I got from Tug specifically is that dogs have complex emotions. In Tug's case, he had a lot of what we'll refer to as big feelings. So if something scared him or excited him or whatever, his reactions were a little bit extreme. And in his case, one of our most difficult challenges was that he was pretty nervous in new environments and with new people around. And it took him quite a while to be comfortable enough in a new environment that he could work on complex behaviors like agility. So what I learned about him over time was he's not distracted and he's not trying to misbehave. He is uncomfortable in this situation and therefore can't respond to the cues that I'm giving him. And it took me probably two or three years of working at agility to recognize that he was scared and then what to do about it. And and I don't think I ever actually conquered that with him. Oddly enough, I have a Border Collie who's now five, Gadget, and he is very happy in new situations, but he also has big feelings that get him overexcited. And when he gets overexcited, he can't think very well. And so while it's not nervousness that's making him have a hard time thinking, it is what's known as over arousal, where he's basically in a state of excitement so that such that he can't think very well. And I've had to learn a lot about that in order to compete with him. He's super talented and really fast and and athletic, but we have to combat that issue. And the things that I have learned from him, I wish I had known with Tug, that I had been able to recognize his emotional state so that I could have helped him a little more with uh, particularly competition and being comfortable with new people So that, I think for me, is probably one of the biggest things that I have learned along this journey is that dogs have emotional states that if they aren't properly addressed, they interfere with their ability to listen, to calm down, to be a good companion. And so we have to be able to educate ourselves on those items to really pursue what it is we want to pursue. Yeah, I think such a good point. So mostly I think about all of the kind of over arousal and emotional issues in terms of agility competition specifically. That's where they tend to come up for me. But if you're a pet owner, this this looks like you are taking in a sort of regular dog training class. You've been working so hard on sit and down at home mm-hmm. and you get into class and the dog won't sit and you don't understand why the dog won't sit. You know the dog knows sit. And I think then typically we're like, well, they're so willful and they're disobedient and da 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 da. No, the dog is is probably over aroused or nervous, Mm -hmm. right? You're again, they don't generalize well. So you're asking the dog to sit at home is completely different than asking the dog to sit at a PetSmart or other sort of training center when there are so many new smells to check out and there are people and maybe they're, maybe your dog's social and there are other dogs in there. The issue isn't that you sort of didn't train them and they're being disobedient. These these big feelings that they're having are overriding their ability to listen, basically. Yes. And I think 
we recognize it a lot more readily if if you're a parent, like I am, in in people and in small children because they do things like scream at you. <laughs> and so that's a really clear cue that um, they're in, in an emotional state, right? I don't want to go to to school right now. Well, we're in the car driving to school. Like, that's what we're doing. But I want to give grandma a hug. <laughs> you can't give grandma a hug. We have left the house and we're not going to go back. There's really no having the conversation at that point. If if they're just too upset and and screaming, they're not listening anymore. Yes, it it really isn't any different for a dog. It just we are not getting those same cues because they're just sort of staring at us, or maybe they're pulling at the end of the leash, completely ignoring us, and, and that's not the same as a you know child kicking the back of your seat while you're driving down the road. I think it is an important thing that I look forward to exploring more in some future episodes. For sure. One more example that popped into my head was, say you have memorized a speech Mm. and then you have to get up in front of a group of 100 people and recite Mm -hmm. it and suddenly you can't remember it. I think our dogs experience very much those same emotions. And so if you're asking them to respond Mm -hmm. in a new place, Mm -hmm. a new location, that same kind of nervousness or overwhelming feeling, whatever it is, can can override that. So it's certainly important. And I know we will talk a lot more about that and, and what to do about it and resources for it and that kind of thing, certainly in future episodes. So we're here to talk more about having fun with your dogs, doing things with your dogs. And there's two reasons for that 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 are kind of pushing us into this podcast right now. The first is as I, you know, I have a regular day job that my dogs are just my hobby. Uh, and some would say maybe more than just a hobby because they rule my life mostly. But in any case, in my day job now, I am known as the lady who has a lot of dogs and I teach them all kinds of complex behaviors. And so as my coworkers or even uh, colleagues at other companies find out about my experience with dogs, they will start asking me questions. Hey, I just got a new puppy. How do I keep them from chewing up things? How long is it going to take before they sleep through the night? How long is it going to take before I can sleep in in the mornings? You know, I'm, I'm starting to get a lot of questions like that because it's not necessarily easy to find those answers if you just do a Google search because there is so much information out there. It's overwhelming, honestly. And so we want this to be a place where you can find out more information about how to have a happy time with your dogs and make it a little clearer and easier to cut through all of that information. And the second reason for kind of a why now for this podcast is everybody has gotten a puppy. People are working from home and so they're home, not traveling as much because of the pandemic. And we have seen, shelters have seen it, breeders have seen it, a huge demand for new puppies or even adult dogs that people have brought home because they're stuck at home and and don't have much else to do. And when is there ever been a better time to have a pet? And so it's great for all of the dogs out there that need homes. But there is certainly a reality of now what do we do with them? How do we make sure that they've been socialized properly? How do I make sure they get adequate exercise? And what do I do to prepare them for when I end up going back to work full time? Whatever the case may be, you are likely in the future not going to be home as much as you are now during the pandemic. So how do we prepare our dogs for that? Because that transition may not be very easy. And so our hope is that we will be able to provide a lot of 
resources and guidance and help you prepare for when that time comes so that when the pandemic ends, which we all hope is sooner than later, we have dogs that can still be mentally sound when we all go back to work. So that is an excellent preview of an upcoming episode. And before we leave today, we want to give you a little bit more about what we are planning to talk about in future episodes. We're going to discuss the many options for activities that you can engage in with your dogs, how dogs and people learn, and a little bit more about the dogs that we've owned since our very first agility dogs and how they keep us learning even more about dog behavior and dog training and how you're never done learning. Thank you, Sprite. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and and how to find, you know, joy in, in dog training and, and hanging out with your dog. So we have many fun topics in store for you, introducing you to all of the dog sports that we can think of. It's an ever-growing field. Um, herding, obedience, flyball, IPO, uh, to name a few. And then some other topics like we've talked about socialization and sort of general, some of that good general pet ownership stuff and how to find good information on those general pet Mm -hmm. topics like Alyssa just talked about, right? Because there's so much stuff out there. Knowing a few more keywords when you're searching will help you find some of those really good sound articles and even help you um, research a good trainer, right? They're there are a yes. lot of a lot of buzzwords out there when you start talking about dog trainers, and having a little bit um, of a foundation can be really helpful when you're you're searching out those resources for you and your dog. Absolutely, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I think it's going to be really educational, hopefully helpful, and uh, fun for us to put together. We're excited about some of the guests we have coming up, um, the topics, and of course. If you can't tell, we're pretty passionate about dogs and learning alongside them. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast and join us for our next episode in two weeks. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time. Bye.